spoiler alert. We will be going through this with the knowledge of all the books and the movies, so just expect spoilers always. If you're listening to this and you want to save the plot twist and the ending, this is not for you. We figure you have all at least passed some of your owls. Welcome to the Time Turner, Harry Potter In-Depth. We're siblings who love Harry Potter. Welcome to season two, or book two, however you want to look at it, of the Time Turner Harry Potter In-Depth. I'm Alyssa, and I'm here with my co-host, my brother, Ken, and we're going through all the books with a sprinkling of the movies, looking for foreshadowing themes, big questions, and general endgame clues. Today, we're discussing Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, chapters one through four. So first, let's channel our inner Professor Binns and remind ourselves what happened happened in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. So in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, we meet Harry Potter, an 11-year-old wizard orphan. He discovers he's a wizard after being neglected by his aunt and uncle his whole life. He goes to Hogwarts to start his magical education and makes friends and enemies, and meanwhile unravels a plot for Voldemort, the evil wizard who killed his parents, to come back to life. So, Ken, let's grab our firebolts, dodge our bludgers as we work through who scored and who fell off their brooms in chapters one through four of the Chamber of Secrets. Chapter one. Harry's life at Thursdays has not improved much going into his second year. He's at home and Vernon has locked all of his wizarding stuff away. He has no access to any of his books, his wand, or any of his other equipment. Vernon's having a big dinner party for Mr. and Mrs. Mason, a group of builders. And how perfect is it that the Masons are builders? We get some nice uh, Freemason jokes in there. It's way too convenient. It is. It's also way too nerdy. Like how many, I feel like most people probably don't realize that, but like that's what pricks my ears up. I mean, I think everybody realizes that, except maybe like okay. the 12-year-olds reading it or the six-year-olds reading it. But I don't know. I feel like I didn't realize it the first couple read-throughs. And one time I read it, I'm like, oh, wait a second. Their name's Masons and they're builders. That's interesting. interesting. I don't, we've discussed this a thousand times. I don't remember the first time I read most of the smaller books. But when I reread it, I think I always am like, oh, the Masons, what a stupid name. They should have come up with something better. It's too obvious. But they're not big characters, so who really even cares? Right, exactly. They're, they'll be in, spoiler alert, they're in, you know, two chapters and then they're done. We'll never see them again, so don't worry too much about it. But for this dinner party, Harry has to pretend that he doesn't exist and keep himself locked in his room. While when Harry's up in his room, we get a reminder that he hasn't heard from any of his friends all summer. Now, while Harry is upset that he doesn't have any of his books or wand or broomstick or anything like that, it's the fact that he hasn't heard from Ron, Hermione, or Hagrid that's really bothering him. But Harry heads up to his room to wait at the dinner party when he finds someone sitting on his bed. Chapter 2. Harry meets Dobby, who has been treated even worse than Harry has during his life. Dobby the house house elf. Yes. Dobby the house elf. (laughs) He's a fan favorite. And he even starts freaking out when Harry asks him to sit down because he's never even been treated like an equal and been asked if he wants to sit before. We see that Dobby has to start hurting himself for even coming 
to talk to Harry. Now, while this you know, shows a sad reminder of the world Dobby lives in, I think this also goes to show the lengths that Dobby will go to, not just now, but in book after book, to help Harry. He will constantly put himself in harm's way if it means helping Harry. And that's something that will not change as the series goes on. Unfortunately, it actually will become even worse as the series goes on. Yeah, it leads to his demise, but it's so sweet that he really wants to protect Harry. And I'm not sure if we're talking about this later, um, but I don't know that we really ever learn what originally made Dobby want to protect Harry. Like what, what in his upbringing, what did he learn that made him think, oh, I should do this? How did he get out of that mentality of the home he was, he was raised? I think that's fascinating. Yeah, I, I have some thoughts. Maybe we can get to that either later this book or maybe that's better served for the end of this book when all the when everything is revealed. But Perhaps. I do have some thoughts, so, so let's get back to that later. That was a very uh, nice way of my brother telling me to shut up. <laughs> I, I've learned from the best. So Dobby has come to Privet Drive to warn Harry not to return to Hogwarts, which is the most batshit thing Harry's ever heard. He hates it there. Hogwarts is the only place he'd felt like home. Why the fuck would he not go back? We also find out that Dobby's been stealing all the letters to Harry that his friends have been writing, which, you know, while explains why Harry hasn't heard anything, also begs the question, how? Like, how the hell does Dobby steal letters from owls in midair and stop them from getting to Harry? That's never explained. And I really would like to know the answer to that one one day. I digress, though. So after Harry refuses to stay at home and says he's still going to go to Hogwarts, Dobby drops the dessert pudding on Mrs. Mason, ruining Vernon's dinner and presumably ruining any chance that Vernon has of getting a big contract with the Masons. Harry gets a letter from the Ministry of Magic warning him for his improper use of magic, which is a shock to the Dursleys as Harry conveniently forgot to tell them that he's not allowed to do magic outside of Hogwarts. Vernon then takes even further steps to deprive Harry, going so far as to put bars on his window and keeping him locked in his room at all times. Just when all hope seems lost, Harry looks and sees Ron Weasley hanging outside of his window. Chapter 3. Ron and the twins are outside Harry's window, there to rescue Harry from the essentially prison that he is in. While in the while in the car, Ron and Harry talk, Ron, Harry, and the twins talk about what Dobby was doing and if this was some sort of joke. And interestingly enough, the twins suggest that this was a joke. Dobby was put up to this because he otherwise would not be able to leave his master's house. And Ron and Harry, Ron and Harry immediately predict that Malfoy put Dobby up to this joke. As we'll later find out, they were only half right. Now, Draco did not put Dobby up to this, but there is a connection between the two characters. And since this is a completely um, spoiler-filled show, we know the connection is that Dobby serves the Malfoys, although yes. not very well. No, like even before all this, it seems like he was kind of a shitty house elf in terms of the what the conservative traditional house elf wizard dynamic he's constantly seemingly screwing up and having to punish himself right and it's so i digress again but it's sort of like 
well, can you be a shitty slave? I mean, that's sort of like a, well, they're, they're slave labor, so they can be as shitty as they will. I mean, this is a bad situation. But I think objectively speaking, he went against their orders and he warned their arch nemesis that something bad was happening. So I think um, not doing too hot on the Malfoy Dobby scorecard. Right. So on their way back we f- to the borough, as we were finding, we find out that Ron's dad, Mr. Weasley, works for the Ministry of Magic. He works in the Misuse of Muddle Artifacts Department. And while he, his job is literally to, you know, stop people from charming and transforming muggle objects and items, he still charmed his own car to fly. And that's okay because he wrote the loophole in the law to make it okay. And I get that he did the loophole, but like, come on, that's still fucking bullshit. We will discuss this later. Like, we I talk have about many this. thoughts. <laughs> Okay, so I'll say I'm just I'll save it for later then. But I'm just saying, like, we talk about you know how swampy Washington D.C. is. The guy literally wrote a fucking loophole so he could do whatever he wanted and not break his own law. Like that's that's some bullshit right there. Ron, the twins, and Harry makes it back to the borough, and we see the borough for the first time. And there's an incredible passage that I want to quote from real quick. Harry describing the borough says that. It looks like it had once been a large stone pig pen, but extra rooms had been added here and there until it was several stories high. And so crooked, it looked as though it was held up by magic, which Harry reminded himself it probably was. I love this passage because it's a beautiful reminder and entry back into the wizarding world. This is still only the second book, so we're still getting used to wizards. We're still getting used to the magical world. And here in this early chapter, we once again get this entry into the wizarding world. We were at Privet Drive, we were with the Dursleys, and now as we go to the borough where magic will be the primary form of doing shit, because I can't think of a better word, we get this reminder, hey, magic is again the strong force. Magic is involved in anything. Remember that we've now re-entered this fantasy world. It's a transition. This is a nice transition back from the Dursleys to the wizarding world. Um, I hear a lot of complaints about the first few books that they always start with the Dursleys and then he always goes to Hogwarts and I feel that. Um, But I think especially when these, in these early books, You have to. You don't have an entire fandom that remembers every single thing that's ever been written. You have to transition it back from our world to the wizarding world. Exactly. I I think they could have, you know, stopped that uh, a book or two earlier. I don't think in Goblet of Fire we needed a reminder. Harry Potter is no ordinary boy. He's a wizard. I think by that point you fucking get it. But definitely in Chamber of Secrets, it's a nice transition and nice reminder of what's going on. Chapter three ends with Mrs. Weasley yelling at her sons for taking the car, but she treats Harry nicely, which forms just an incredible comparison to Harry's home life with the Dursleys, where Dudley is treated nicely no matter what he does, and Harry is blamed for everything. Here, his friends are getting in trouble for saving him, and he's not getting in trouble at all. It once again shows the complete difference between how the Dursleys treat Harry and how Mrs. Weasley sees Harry as her own son, even though there's no blood relation. And there's also an aspect here of fairness in the household that Harry certainly has never 
observed or been part of at least since he was a year old, it didn't matter what happened. It was Harry's fault. And in this case, he truly didn't ask to be rescued. He did. He wasn't part of this. He got in the car. And I think not only is he seeing a mother's love in a way that he hasn't experienced since he was a baby and can't remember, but he's also getting a sense of like, oh, well, I didn't get in trouble for something I didn't do. And that must be really monumental to Harry and adds to that bond of this, um, you know, mother figure. Absolutely. Alyssa, it looks like our owls are coming in, bringing today's daily profit. So let's take a minute and talk about today's sponsor. Made to Order podcast creates personalized podcasts about you, your friends, or your loved ones. They work with you to learn your whole story or the part of it you want to share, then craft it into a one-of-a-kind script. Then it's produced professionally with a narrator and music included into a high-quality MP3 file. Made to Order podcast offers formats for any kind of life event you could think of, weddings, birthdays, anniversaries, even Harry Potter parties. If you have anything else in mind, they'll work with you to bring your idea to life. Made to Order podcast is a fully digital service, making it a COVID-friendly gift. You can even send it anywhere in the world that has Wi-Fi. Send to your parents' house, to the beach, anywhere you want. You can play these podcasts at a wedding reception, birthday party, or any other gathering with yourself or all of your friends. You can even include your favorite memories, inside jokes, and funny stories. Anything you want to share, Made to Order podcast will help you share. Your podcast also includes two podcast-style advertisements based on your interests, hobbies, funny stories, and pet peeves, if you'd like. Visit madetoorderpodcast.com to get started creating your personalized, unique podcast today. Chapter four. The borough, as we find out, is about as different as possible from Privet Drive. While Privet Drive is neat, clean, orderly, and does ev- and the residents do everything possible to seem presentable to anyone who could come by, the borough is, for lack of a better term, a fucking mess. Everyone's running around like crazy. People are being doing their own things. There's no order. There's no logic to a lot of what's going on. But Harry loves it. It's the exact opposite of what he's used to, but he's so much happier here than he ever was at Privet Drive. And we get some nice early interactions between Harry and his future love, Ginny, who literally cannot even be in the same room as him without running out squealing. And I, I don't know, Alyssa, you know, I was never an 11-year-old girl, but is this how you were around guys you liked when you were 11? One million percent, yes. Yeah? Okay. Yes. One million percent. Yes. In fact, <laughs> You're right squealing. in fact, I took a class in middle school. There was like one elective and I took that one class, which had impacts for my entire life because I thought that the boy I had a crush on wouldn't be in that elective because it wasn't as popular. And then it turned out that he was, and he was in that class until I graduated high school. And I mean, oh my God. I don't, I don't even know what he's doing now. So like, it's not a thing, <laughs> but, but yes, the answer to that is like, for me, a million percent. Yes. 
Okay, that's A, hysterical, and B, I never actually heard that story before, and I'm so glad. Breaking I'm news. hearing this for the first time with everyone else. That is really funny. It's so, very true. <laughs> Harry and the gang have to go to Diagon Alley to get all their supplies, and we get introduced to a new magical device, flu powder, a powder that you use to in the chimney paste to travel to other places around the world. And un- maybe unsurprisingly, Harry completely and utterly fucks it up. Instead of traveling to Diagon Alley, he goes to Nocturne Alley. And we won't even get into at least right now about how the movies have him just kind of stutter over Diagon Alley. And somehow that means going to Nocturne Alley. It doesn't make sense, but whatever. That's, that's neither here nor there for I can't talk about that. my, my just, recap. I can't. Yeah. We'll, we'll pass over that one. Harry overhears Draco and his father uh, talking and selling items from their home. After being rescued by Hagrid, Harry and the gang and Hermione is there now as well, travel around Diagon Alley. And I just want to make special note of the fact that Harry buys strawberry and peanut butter ice cream, which sounds like the grossest thing in the world to me. Peanut butter ice cream is 1000% my favorite ice cream flavor. But would you get strawberry and peanut butter ice cream? That's a weird combo, I feel like. I mean, it's sort of like a sort of peanut butter and jelly flavor, which is common. So I, I, I did feel consider you that. on that it's a little <laughs> gross, but it's, I mean, I would definitely eat it. Okay. Like, I, I didn't think about that when I was writing my notes. Like, okay, it's kind of a peanut butter and jelly ice cream, but it still sounds so good. I mean, that should be that great. A, no, a, that like peanut butter never and jelly in a million years would I get it. Great. I feel like that was a flavor when right. we went to Harry Potter World last year. Was it? I don't remember. That. I didn't okay. get that one, which maybe <laughs> is proving your point. But I, I think people will eat that. Yeah. Okay. I mean, Fair. our dad eats. He wouldn't eat peanut butter because that's not his thing. No. But he would eat the weirdest ice cream combination. <laughs> so. I mean, it's a running joke that we find the weirdest flavor wherever we are and send him a picture. So I, I feel like it, we're in a not a great spot to judge ice cream flavors. Maybe, but and I'll just hold on to that tangent for a quick second. Part of me does kind of feel like some of that was dad making sure we didn't like those flavors so he could get what he wanted and know that we wouldn't want to have it. Not so much that it is weird flavors. He wanted us to tip. think it's weird. <laughs> That is that is a they, super hot tip for parenting that we will have to remember one day. I mean, yeah, it make, doesn't work with my make dog. Make your kids hate the things you like. Lily, my dog, <laughs> eats everything I'll eat, um, but she doesn't like anything healthy, like a green. Like I tried to give her a piece of a lettuce yesterday, and she was like, she laughed at me. Like you could tell, she's like, no, 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 mom, where's the chicken? I always knew me and Lily related, and that's the proof. We both make the same face at things that are green colored. Well, now that we've talked about our whole lives, let's go back to (laughs) finishing up chapter four. Yes. So everyone ends up going to buy their new spell books where they find out that Gilderoy Lockhart is making a promotion, is making a promotion and they find, and Lockhart sees Harry in the crowd and makes Harry takes pictures with him, announces that he's going to be the new defense against the dark arts teacher and gives Harry a free set of books. Harry, ever the selfless guy who knows he has a massive amount of gold in Gringotts, gives all the free books to Ginny so that she doesn't have to try to buy secondhand books. 
saying that he can go get his own, which is very kind of him. And we'll get back to this interaction in these books in a little bit. Arthur and Lucius Malfoy have a little uh, fisticuffs, you could say, getting into it. And I know that like we're supposed to hate Lucius, and I kind of do, but like I love these interactions between the two. I love the fact that like Lucius and Arthur have this enemy rival relationship at work, especially considering like their positions seem to be so different, but yet they still have these feelings for each other where they are literally rolling around on the ground fighting each other until Haggard just kind of like picks them up like they're two years old and ends it. But I just, I'll just end with that, that I, I love the fact that these guys are literally fighting with their fists rather than their wants. And I'll end it by saying like, oh, such men, like women don't do this. This is a men thing. And oh. <laughs> Yes. Let's stir the cauldron and sip on some tea. What's our big questions or hot takes for chapters one through four of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets? You can go first. All right. So I want to start by talking about some of the interesting things Dobby says and the hints we get for the eventual conclusion we realize, which is A, that he works for the Malfoys, and B, what the pl- a lot of this story will be about, which is the Tom Riddle diary. So Harry says to Dobby, you can't have met many decent wizards. And Dobby shakes his head and it's like, yeah, that should have been our first hint that he worked for the Malfoys. You certainly would not call the Malfoys decent wizards. But it's also interesting because Dobby refers to Voldemort as the Dark Lord. And the only people we ever hear refer to Voldemort that way are current and former Death Eaters. Everyone else refers to him either as Voldemort or he who must not be named or you know who. So I'm curious if you think this was supposed to be a hint for us to recognize, hey, Dobby works for, some, for, works for Death Eaters. We didn't know who Death Eaters were at the time, but wizards who supported Voldemort. I think this has to be like a tiny Easter egg for rereads because I don't think after reading one book and like one chapter of the second book, you could possibly know that Dark Lord is for bad people and everything else is for okay people. I also think I talk about this, I feel like every episode, but so much of who we are and how we speak is by how we're raised and who we're who, how, how we grow up and nothing is more clear than Dobby calling Voldemort the dark Lord, right? Because Dobby is good. Um, I don't know where he falls on that, like chaotic good chart. And I, I would love for us to find one of those and talk about it, but he's solidly good. He's a good thing. I I don't want to say person or creature. Like he's just good. He's a, he's a good soul. And he's definitely chaotically good. He's not neutral and he's not lawful, (laughs) certainly. That's why I thought of it, but okay, I'm I'm no expert. So I think obviously he calls Voldemort the Dark Lord because that's what he thinks his name is. Um, I will digress for another moment and tell a family story. We had a dish (laughs) that we made growing up (laughs) and it's essentially... It's like ground beef, tomato sauce, and pasta. It's beefaroni. It's, it's like homemade <laughs> beefaroni. But my parents are Trekkies. And growing up, they called it Horda. And I'm not a Trekkie, but apparently that's some like Star Trek reference about some like very ugly looking creature thing. 
but my whole life, they called it Horda. They never called it anything else. And so my first week in college, I go to the like cafeteria area with my brand new friends. I'm trying to be cool. And they're serving that dish. And I scoop some on and we're sitting down and I'm like, oh my God, guys, like this is the best. They have Horda. And all these people look at me like I'm crazy. They're like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, Horda, it's it's the dish. <laughs> and they're Do like- people not know anything? Right. And I, 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 they were just like, okay. Like they were being polite. Like, okay, we moved on. <laughs> and I called home later and I was like, oh my God, where did I go to school? These like uncultured people. I'm in like a major urban area, a very diverse community. And they don't even know what Porta is. And I think <laughs> our parents laughed for like a solid 30 minutes because they never yeah. even thought- to tell us that that wasn't the name of the dish. And so when we talk about Dobby calling Voldemort the Dark Lord, how would he know? They probably only called him the Dark Lord his whole life. No, you're absolutely right. And I actually, I remember that day. Like I remember the parents just cracking Oh, you were home. Yeah. I I was home. I was there. I remember that. And I remember being very upset as well because I didn't know either. Like I obviously didn't embarrass myself in front of my new friends like you did. I was able to talk like a normal person when I went off to school because of the mistakes you made but still I blame them to for this to this very day back to Dobby though um I I gotta say so and in the end game when we get to the end of this book Harry is talking to Dobby and says Dobby I asked you if this involves you know who and you told me no but Tom Riddle was at the center of all of this like he was at the center of all of this why did you tell me no? And Dobby's like, oh, it's a clue. I said no, because his name before he was known as the Dark Lord was okay to say. So I was giving you a hint that it, he, that it was him. Oh what yeah, this is fuck? an awful argument and a wild <laughs> technicality. It, it makes right. absolutely no sense. It's fucking stupid as all hell. Like, oh no, no, see, because it was a different name, it wasn't same- Voldemort because he wasn't Voldemort yet, except that he's Voldemort now, but he was writing as Tom Riddle then. And it's really a memory that's doing this and a piece of his current soul, but it was really his old soul. And you're like, ah, uh, and even though I said, no, that didn't actually mean no. What? Wink, wink. <laughs> right, right. Makes no fucking sense. And it still bothers me to this but day. But I dropped the cake on that lady to tell you. Um, well, maybe you could have. Maybe. The pudding, but- the pudding, British, all British dessert is pudding. Which, you know, he ruined the punchline of Vernon's Japanese golfer joke, which I still want to know what that joke was. And I think we can probably definitively agree that there's no way it wasn't wildly offensive. Do you think it was like the original dad joke? I think it's racist, whatever it is. Like, I think it's a racist joke against Japanese (laughs) people. And so it's the Japanese golf. Yeah, right. It's I mean, Japanese, yeah. I think there's like a very small chance it was funny, like very small, because I just don't see Vernon Dursley telling funny jokes. But I think like I didn't think about this when we read it, and I don't think I thought about it for a long time. But the last few rereads, I'm like, oh shit, that's a racist joke. Like, oh maybe that was okay in the late '90s, <laughs> but that's not okay now. Right. Uh, tw- 2020 means not approve of this joke. Yeah, it's not it PC, but um, <laughs> certainly not. But we didn't get the joke. So no. all we're getting is a hint that he gives racist jokes. Yes. He also says that there was a joke about American plumbers, which I also think is probably offensive, but 
also probably funnier. So I think one of the cutest things that I like in this chapter is the argument between Arthur and Molly. When Harry and the boys show up at the burrow and Molly kind of springs on him. What about enchanting a car? And he's like, oh, a car. Wait, what? What do you? I don't, I don't know what well, you, you're talking see, that's, about. That's an interesting point. Cause uh I mean that would be weird. Um, and I think it's just funny because you can tell she's not like really, really mad at him, but she's like a little mad at him. And um, but I think that that sort of gives way to a bigger conversation nothing too serious but a bigger conversation about what does Arthur Weasley do and his knowledge on different levels of muggle things it's alarming so he knows enough about cars and I'll tell you I know nothing about cars I suffer from one thing going wrong in the car and I take it to the mechanic and they're like all these six things. And I'm like, okay, because I don't know. Um, He knows enough about cars to get it to fly, but he can't read the number signs on like British pounds in the fourth book when they go to the um, Quidditch World Cup. So I'm having a lot of trouble understanding what he does. Yeah. it's not entirely clear how much he knows. Like he doesn't understand how plugs work, but he's obsessed with plugs and he electricity amazes him, but his job is to deal with muggle items. So you think he should understand how some of this stuff works. Sure. I I sort of wonder if he has one of those jobs where like he's sort of investigating things. So he gets really, really good and knowledgeable about like the things he investigates like oh I'm looking at an exploding toilet so now because of this matter I'm gonna have to learn everything there is about toilets and now he knows like the entire history of toilets but he doesn't understand like a lamp or whatever so maybe it's like he knows a lot about a little yeah, I, th- I think that's fair. I, I think that it's unclear the extent to his knowledge. And honestly, I, it, maybe this isn't the right time for this conversation, but it makes me wonder what other types of jobs are available to people. Because the only jobs we know about, essentially, are jobs working for the ministry, working in the ministry of magic ors, misuse of artifacts. Uh, working for Gringotts, either at the bank or, you know, going off and hunting for treasures, Uh, working with dragons, which I don't know if that's a ministry job or what Charlie's doing, or working at Hogwarts. Or arts. We know that there are singers. Uh, We know that there's Quidditch. We know that there's the press, which of course is tied to the government. And I'm sure our entire book five discussion will be on like freedom of the press and government oppression. But I think there are definitely more jobs than we're thinking about. Definitely at this point, we don't have a whole lot of ideas. I also have to pick a a bone. Is that the phrase? Yep. Pick a bone with 
the fact that like, I know you mentioned that it's weird, but Arthur writing these laws, and I know you're like, this is corruption. And I, I get that. But in what kind of world do you have like a low level operations person also writing the laws having like, that's just not a thing that exists. I'll, I'll give you another one right along there where Arthur is trying to pass these anti muggle discrimination laws, which why is he in charge of this? Like Lucius is upset over these laws that Arthur wants to pass. And I, it makes no sense to me why Arthur's in charge of it. Or also based on what we know about the wizarding world, it seems to me that at this time, the ministry legislature, if there is one, whoever actually passes the laws, based on my understanding right now, would not seem inclined to pass such a anti-discrimination law. So I don't really know how Arthur's gained his pass. He certainly doesn't have the political wherewithal and uh, courage to kind of bully people along to signing his bill. No one's going to be bullied by him. So I'm kind of surprised that he's able to get such racially charged laws into existence. Yeah, I mean, I think the chance that he hired a really good lobbyist is probably slim to none. Yeah, I I actually read a book a long time ago about like Harry Potter and the law or whatever. And I'm pretty sure- I'm pretty (laughs) sure that the the answer was like, there's very little going on here. Um, And again, I think fifth book we hear, fourth and fifth book we see like, you know, criminal proceedings and such. I just think like, there's no way in a real life government you have like, it's like having an FBI agent write the laws on like terrorism. Like it's just Embezzle- what embezzlement or whatever. Yeah. It's just not the thing. It's not how it, right. how it goes, but I guess it's a smaller community. So they're multitasking, but it is strange. And I'd be very interested to see like how the law actually got drafted. Like, what is it? What does the law look like? How is it written? Interesting. Now, I'll also say that uh, we both saw Hamilton this weekend. So I'm sure that, you know, watching someone write the laws of this country probably plays into our current discussion on how these laws are being built as well. Though you're a lawyer, so you think about that. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I don't know. We, by the way, for for reference, we watched the Hamill film because yes. they released it on Disney Plus. Um, but I don't think it was Hamilton that made me think of that. I think it's probably because um, I play a lawyer in real life. But <laughs> well, the Hamilton song, Hamilton songs just started running through my head talking about this, so that's why I thought maybe it was perhaps perhaps that is the case. Um, I think now might be a ripe time to bring up a major flaw I see in Harry Potter and not the books. Harry Potter as a person. He has like an inner dialogue about that he's so rich and the Weasleys are so poor. And he does give his books to Ginny, which is like nice, I guess. But do we think he's actually never offered to give them anything? Like they're hosting him and feeding him every summer. And he's just like, oh, I'm rich. And I know a few times in the series, I don't remember if it's this one, but he's like, oh, they wouldn't take anything. And it's like, well, are you guessing that? Because if they're really poor, they might. 
That, that was exactly what I was going to bring up in response that we do have a couple of times where he says he knows they wouldn't take the money if he offered. It still seems like he could have, you know, I think that was convenient. I think because enough yeah. people probably were like, um, cause I don't think it was this book that we had that dialogue where it's like, I don't know. They wouldn't take anything. I would give them half if I could. Well, I think that's convenient because enough people were probably like, um, excuse me. Why is he not sharing his money with the people that like take such good care of him? And I don't even mean like splitting the vault in half. Cause I think that's ridiculous, but you'd think, you'd think there'd be some kind of dialogue about like, well, dinner's on me out in Diagon Alley. But then again, we do know that throughout the series, we don't see every interaction that's ever happened. So maybe, maybe he does that and we don't know. Right. And I, I think that the interaction we're referring to my gut is it's in Goblet. I don't know why, but I just have a feeling it was in Goblet and that fits with, kind of some of the other things going on in that book with the leprechaun gold and Harry giving Fred and George his winnings at the end, which admittedly then he does say, you know, buy Ron a nice suit with some of this money and then put the rest to your store. But you're absolutely right. It, it makes no sense. Like, I, it would be great to see s- uh, some confirmation that he's at least tried to pay for some stuff. Uh, otherwise, it just seems like he's making excuses for himself. Yeah, I think it was just probably overlooked. He's also, and this is a fault of the readers, I think, in general. Like, he's 12, right? Like, I think the self-awareness on, and also, I again, I keep talking about this. It's not like he was brought up in, like, a sharing environment. So the concept of, like, let me treat you to dinner might not be something he thinks about. And let's let's give him credit for being twelve and seemingly not spending all his money willy nilly. He seems to he he does spend money. He does buy things certainly, but he doesn't seem to be kind of draining his bank account. Oh, he's low maintenance for sure. Euro. He's yeah. low maintenance. So I think for the next question, I'm going to ask you something. You're the historian. What are your <laughs> okay. thoughts on Gilderoy Lockhart's books? <laughs> Like the fact that he's a, you know, fraud? Well, that, or just like the concept of this dude writing all these books like this. So so it's interesting because I sometimes see stuff like online talking about how, you know, my professor is making us buy his book, you know, how greedy or whatever. And I'll be honest, like, I don't know how it works with Lockhart in the wizarding world, but in, you know, this world. For the most part, that's not why professors say to buy their books. They gen- professors really don't make very much money when you buy their history books on Amazon. They do it because they honestly believe it's the right book to teach a certain subject, which is understandable. They wrote the book. They're going to think that it's the right, right way to teach. And yeah, you know, they might get a couple cents out of it, and that helps here and there. I don't, I don't have a problem necessarily with like Lockhart assigning his own books, except that he signs like 30 of them, and they're all fucking expensive. Like assign some cheap books. I don't. And there's also the fact that, you know, he's a fraud and didn't do this stuff. And if I wrote a bunch of books and if, and people found out that everything I wrote, I just took from someone else and just said that I did it. I'd get in a lot of trouble. I would not be given a job teaching at the premier university in my area. Like no one's going to believe that you went to Normandy and invaded and then wrote about it. I mean, 
you're a little young for that. But yeah, it's super greedy and like had no one notice this. Like, come on, something's weird here. I find him. Well, and it's, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, it's the professors at Hogwarts all seem to realize that something's up. They seem to know pretty quickly that he doesn't know jack shit. And like, it's incredible that, that Dumbledore and McGonagall and everyone else like allows him to teach, even though they all seem to know that like he can't. Well, two things. I guess one is a hot take. I find Gildor Lockhart very funny. Like, I think okay. every interaction he has, I'm like, oh my God, this is hysterical. A hundred points to, I think he's a Ravenclaw, which is fascinating. I'm pretty right. sure he's a Ravenclaw. I think um, you're right. So I don't hate Gildor Lockhart. So that's my hot take is like, I think he's funny. Obviously he ranks very low in the terms of defense against dark arts professors but um, hilarious. And then the second thing that I wanted to point out here is that we've, again, talked about this. There's a curse on this position. So the Hogwarts professors seemingly must be so used to getting duds every year for this position. I mean, they either have to quit, get fired, get killed, get maimed. Like there has to be some publicly humiliated, like something has to happen every year to get rid of these people. So odds are that you have a lot of really stupid, bad professors in this position. Sure. Yeah. I mean, incompetence is the easiest way for the curse to work, right? It's a lot easier to just have a bunch of incompetent professors one after the other than keep killing them off. Like that will be pretty noticeable. Right. I mean, it was noticeable by the third book, I think, where we were like, um, what's going on here? Something's up here. Absolutely. But speak, speaking, I'm going to use that as a great transition. Speaking of something being up, George met, notices that Percy's been oh, acting weird because he oh, has it's been. Oh, a boner joke. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I know. I'm sorry. I couldn't resist. Percy's been acting weird because he's been staying in his room sending letters. And we can presume later that this is because he's found himself a little girlfriend, which is very cute. And I'm just going to use this opportunity to, with my, you know, getting up joke to say, you know, is, is there a wizard owl equivalent of sexting that he's doing? Like, what's, what, well, what do we, he's what, 15 at the time? What, what is he doing with all these That's a good point. I have two thoughts on the matter. Is, is the first one, why is a brother-sister no, duo talking about sexting? I think oh, this okay. is a reasonable question, <laughs> and it's fine. I think that there are two reasonable answers to this. One is... There's just no way Percy's sexting. He's such a fucking... Weeb? I don't know what the word is. <laughs> He's such a stick up his ass. Like, I, I just... There's just no way. He's yeah. just not cool enough. I just don't see it happening. But do you remember the mirror between James and Sirius? That you could see each other at all times. I mean, you're not telling <laughs> me that that's like... That's the oh, way to yeah. do it, right? So there <laughs> has to be ways in the magical world. Right. I mean, there's always ways. I just don't think Percy is partaking. I think I'm. I think he's writing about like thinning cauldron bottoms and like boring <laughs> regulatory stuff. And ma- magic carpet regulations and exactly. Yeah. And, it's exactly. Yeah. I think he's writing about like the most boring things imaginable and trying to sound impressive. But I do think it's possible that there is a, some kind of magical sex thing. I just don't think he's using it. You make a very logical argument. The only thing I'll say is Ginny does walk in on him and Penelope in a room doing things that they don't tell us what. 
So yeah, but she's she's a baby. She's eleven years old. They're probably like kissing on the cheek, and she's like, ew. Probably. So I, I don't. I mean, the book is, I think, pretty like prudish. Like you don't yes. really ever get overtly sexual actions. I mean, the closest you get is what like lavender and Ron in the sixth book, which is disgusting. Yep. But you don't, I mean, you just hear snogging, snogging, snogging. I remember having to look up what snogging meant <laughs> the first time I read it. What is this thing? I don't know what they're doing. I mean, because when I read it, I don't remember how old I was. I'm sure we can look that up. But I remember reading the sixth book. And I remember reading the fifth book when they talked about snogging. And I remember thinking, like, is this kissing or is this something more? And I don't know what that word is. So I did have to look it up. Right. Yeah, I think that's. I think you're probably right. And for the record, uh, let's see here if I can find a Half-Blood Prince came out in 2005, it looks like. So, okay. So, cool. Yeah, so <laughs> you, you, you can do the math enough. from there. Yeah, I was old. I, 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 was, give your year no, I was certainly <laughs> old enough to um, be curious on whether it was first this thing base or something else. Or second yes. base or another base. Um, what? I don't know. Yeah. So from that conversation, I just want to move on to a slightly different question on how things work in the wizarding world, which is Hermione's parents are in Diagon Alley. How do they get there? So in the first book, Harry gets to Diagon Alley through the leaky cauldron, but it's implied, if not outright stated, that muggles cannot see the leaky cauldron. So how would Hermione's parents have actually gone there? Do you have any thoughts? I think they let them in. I think that you can bring muggles into Diagon Alley, but I just picture them having to like keep turning around because they keep having one of those like curses where they're like, this is, I'm supposed to be somewhere else or (laughs) (laughs) this is, and they have to like force them through. But I, I think that there's nothing that's, I don't think there's anything that says muggles can't go through. I think muggles don't notice the entrance to the leaky cauldron. I mean, I'm, they don't have wands to tap the bricks, but Hermione does. So I, I, I don't see that one as like a big plot hole or anything. That's fair. All right. So with that, I, I have one more big thing I want to big up. And it's kind of two pronged. So I'll bring both up at once because both involve Lucius Malfoy. So we get our first taste of him in these sections. Beautiful and- hair. Beautiful hair. Daenerys Targaryen hair. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um, and it's interesting because he expressed, one of the first things we hear him do is express concern about being raided. And he said, and he sells some stuff so that, that he says would be embarrassing if found. But he says that he's not going to be raided because his name still counts for something. Well, Lucius, sorry to tell you, but a couple of years from now, you're going to go to prison and your house will be raided. And those things that you refuse to sell right now will be confiscated and you will get in trouble for them. So you should have sold them when you had the chance, buddy. Wow. But we also he must be so scared of you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Me Shaking standing up in his to... boots. I mean, exactly. I think we can also all agree that the Malfoys really end up fucked in this series. Like, they don't except, end up... Not really. I mean, I don't mean like they're we don't really know what happens to them. I mean, and we know that Draco has a kid and he's fine. We don't know that Lucius didn't go to jail. We don't know that Narcissa is still alive. We don't know any of that. We know that right after they were kind of neutral, like in the moment. Right. And we know that Narcissa lied 
to Voldemort that Harry was alive. I'm just saying that I don't think there's anyone that thinks that they came out of the Battle of Hogwarts as like golden people anymore. No, cer- certainly not. Right. So they certainly gut, fell from grace. Right. My gut is that as, you know, at the end of Deathly Hollows, they're like, no, everyone's leaving them alone. And my gut is that no one bothered to, you know, try them or anything because it was over. I'm guessing whatever. that Lucius went to prison, that he went to ask them. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it was their house. Like, I think. Yeah. I think Lucius went to Azkaban, but I don't know. I just am saying like, yeah, he's talking a big game here, but it's sort of like when you reread it, you're like, oh, these, like you're, you pity them. You're like, oh, like you think you're so cool and dark and evil. And it really, you might have a good couple of years, but it's not, I don't think they're ever, I don't think the Malfoy name ever really regains the glory that it was once. No, certainly not. But I will say, this is crazy. The first time I read it, I was a Draco Ginny shipper. Really? Uh-huh. Hot take. Oh, my God. From Alyssa today. I thought Draco and Ugh. Ginny were going to get together. Oh, what is wrong with you? I know. Ew. I mean, oh I really saw that the wrong way. And then we'll talk about this. But in the sixth book, I was like, oh my God, Harry and Draco, like they're going to hook up because Harry was so obsessed with Draco. I was like, that's, that's, it's not just for evil purposes. And I think that's a very popular one in the fandom. Yes. Yeah. There's a lot of, I think like fan fiction stuff about Oh, that. for sure. But I think my hottest take was that for a long time, I thought it was going to be a Draco Ginny situation. That's okay. I've always been one on the side of that, you know, Harry and Hermione should have just ended up together and the parents well, I can have a whole episode. I can have a whole episode on this. So let's let's. This is not we'll save that for a, a place special for that. No. So I'll go. So I'll go back to the other po- point I want to make with the Malfoys in that scene, which is that we see Draco showing a particular interest in two different items: the Hand of Glory and a cursed necklace. Which is not just Draco being a creep and looking and being interested in these dark objects that he shouldn't care about. Both actually will come into his possession. He uses the cursed necklace to try to kill Draco, but ends up only hurting Katie Bell. I mean, to and kill he uses, Dumbledore. Kill Dum- sorry, what I say? You said to kill Draco, which is uh, yes. ironic and a funny Yes, sorry. To, he used it to try to kill Dumbledore, but ends up only hurting Katie Bell. And he uses the Hand of Glory to escape the uh, Harry's allies. The Dumbledore's he, army in order of Dumbledore's Phoenix. army. I thought it was in Half-Blood that he used Yeah, but it was the Order of the Phoenix and the Half-Blood and the teachers that were fighting back, I think. Correct. Yes, right. It's it's at the end of Half-Blood, and he uses the Hand of Glory to get around them. So it's interesting that we see him make note of two different objects that end up playing an important role in the sixth book. I still, the sixth book, I I think I've said it before, at least I've said it to you. The sixth book is my favorite book by, by a lot. I still can't believe that Draco turned into any kind of actual enemy. Like I, to me, he's just like a little bitch, like bully. And it's mm-hmm. fascinating to me that like, this must've been all at least a little thought out because he looks at these items. He uses the item later, but speaking on Malfoy's and enemies at Endgame, I think a good way for us to wrap up this particular set of chapters is to ask the question, when Lucius Malfoy slipped the diary, Tom Riddle's diary to Ginny Weasley, 
what did he know? And I, we know that Dumbledore says later that there's no way he really knew what it was because he never would have just like thrown away a piece of Voldemort's soul like that. But how much did, do you think he really knew? Yeah, I think he knew, he knew that the diary was the key to opening the chamber of secrets. And he saw this as an opportunity to open the chamber while also getting rid of a potential, I guess, political enemy in Arthur by trying to pin it on Ginny. But I think it also raises the question, did he, was this always his plan or did he have another way of getting into the school? And he kind of has this light bulb moment where he's like, oh, Ginny's books are right here. I can slip the diary in and this solves all of my problems and no one can ever tie it to me. I mean, I, I don't know why he'd be like walking around with that thing if he didn't intend to give it to somebody. I don't know about Ginny. I think it's really interesting because a lot of these chapters have focus on the Weasleys being poor and Arthur Weasley not being very prominent in the, mis- the ministry. But it's a little counterintuitive because if Malfoy is so important and so high up, why the hell does he give a shit about Arthur Weasley? Like if Arthur Weasley is some like low level staffer in the ministry, why does Lucius Malfoy use his like best weapon on his, on this guy's daughter? Like this guy should be like not even a blip on Lucius's radar, but yet he's like, Ooh, my arch enemy, let me give his daughter a diary to open up the chamber of secrets. Like this will be fun. And like, you don't have anyone better to, to, to pin that. I mean, that's just silly. I agree. It's weird and it doesn't make much sense. I think it brings us back to our previous discussion on how does magical law work? How does bureaucracy work in the Ministry of Magic, and unfortunately, we don't have the full answers to those questions, but it's weird. It doesn't make sense. You'd think he would have better ways of dealing with his political problems. And it just, why is Arthur Weasley a political problem for him? Like, Arthur Weasley is, like, in the misuse of muggle artifacts group that seemingly has no direct reports, has no position of power. His family is pure blood, but they're entirely out of the rat race. So why does Lucius even view him as a political enemy? And that makes me think that the family, the Weasleys and the Pruitts, were very powerful back in the day. But we don't really learn that much about the Weasley family. We learn a little bit about the Pruitts, Molly's family, and not that much. But why would you waste your good, evil resources on like a... Junior staffer from a no, no, nobody office. Right. And right. As you said, we know that, you know, people in Molly's family were in the order. So they have connections to Dumbledore and this kind of opposite side that from Lucius. But we also know that all these families are interconnected. We know Sirius tells us in order that he's relate, he's like second cousins with both Molly and Arthur. I don't remember the exact relationship, yeah, but something yeah, yeah. like second cousins. That, and they're like second cousins related. with each other. Right. So maybe family connections matters. And, you know, there's, there's, in, there's still the ability for people like Arthur, even if they're, you know, low level peons to get things done. Because even if he's low level, being a pure blood and being related to so many people gives him enough influence to get things done. But then at the same time, Malfoy is more powerful but from all accounts. So he should still be able to wield his influence. So I don't know. 
Yeah, it's just a bad look for the Malfoys. Like if they're that important, yeah. they just shouldn't give a shit about anybody else. Right. But I will never understand evil people. No. Definitely. And with that, I think that concludes this episode of Time Turner, Harry Potter in depth. We will see you next time for chapters five through eight of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. In the meantime, we're going to both go and eat about a quick half dozen bacon sandwiches each, even though I feel like I would feel like sick if I ate six bacon sandwiches. Sounds delicious. And please um, subscribe, leave us reviews, connect with us on social media. We'd love to hear from you. And see you next time.